Well, church, were you blessed by that? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yes, we can apply. There we go. Dawn, my daughter certainly was blessed by that. She, she, my five-year-old daughter looked over at me and said, are they going to sing two songs? And I said, no, sweetheart, they're going to sing six or seven. And she got a big old smile and she started to clap. And so she was pretty excited about that as well. My son heard that they're going to sing six or seven songs. And he said, dad, does that mean your sermon's going to be shorter? And I said, well, maybe a little bit. And he got a big old smile on his face and uh, got excited. Merry Christmas, Hamilton Baptist Church. It's a delight to be here with you to celebrate our God who has come to save us. I invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah. We'll begin this morning in Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. You'll find that on page 613 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we certainly would invite you to take that Bible in the pew rack in front of you home uh, to be a copy of God's Word for your very own. So Isaiah 52, verse 13, we're going to try to work through 15 verses this morning. We're going to go verse by verse. I think you'll find uh, your, your ability to engage in this message enhanced if you have a copy of God's Word open in your lap as we continue to refer to it. Of course, the verses will be on the screen, um, but I would encourage you to have God's Word open that you might follow along through this message. So Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, hear now the Word of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they will see, and that which they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed that they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for this generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they have made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was to put, be put to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Our Father, we're so thankful for this time this morning to gather before you, have your word open, that we might hear from you, that we might delight in you, that we might know you and your Son who you have sent to bear our iniquities, to carry our transgressions. So help us even now as we consider your word. Speak to us through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In April of 2007, Joshua Bell, who was one of the finest classical musicians of our day, performed down the road in Washington, D.C. But rather than wearing a tuxedo, he wore blue jeans and a t-shirt and a baseball cap. Rather than performing in the Kennedy Center, he performed in LaFont Plaza Metro Station. And rather than being engrossed with an audience, he played to businessmen and tourists and students passing by. Like many street performers, he sat up near a trash can, placing his violin case out before him. He threw in a couple dollars there just to encourage those who walked by. And he would go on to play six of the most wonderful pieces of music ever written for the violin on an instrument worth more than a half a million dollars. It was an experiment by the Washington Post. The Post wondered, do people recognize beauty? And do they take time to appreciate it? So Joshua Bell played for 45 minutes. And during that time, 1,097 people walked by. Seven stopped to listen. 27 gave donations for a total of $32.17. The Post writes, 1,070 hurried by, oblivious to the virtuoso whose talents command more than $1,000 a minute. This all was captured by hidden video. You can watch it on YouTube. It's an interesting watch. There were six moments in particular that Joshua Bell identified as the awkward times. Those were the times when he finished a piece of music. The music stopped, and it was followed by silence. No applause, no celebration, no acknowledgement whatsoever. There was one person, however, who recognized him. She had gone to his concert a handful of days earlier, and, and, and you watch the video, and she places herself about 10 feet away, right in front of him, front row center. And there she listens to this 45-minute concert. The Post interviewed her, and she said, It was the most astonishing thing I have ever seen in D.C. Joshua Bell standing there, playing at rush hour, and people were not stopping, not even looking, as a few flipped their quarters in his direction. The prophet Isaiah says of the Messiah, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, when the Messiah came to this world, rather than rejoice in his beauty and be awed into delight at his majesty, most ignored him. Many hated him. As God's symphony of redemption played intensely at his birth and beautifully during his life and reaching its crescendo at his death and resurrection, almost everyone walked by oblivious to the unparalleled glory and grace before him. What about you? Are you just walking by this Christmas season? Are you just going through life? Do you hear the symphony of God's redemption? Have you, have you taken note of what we even declared already this morning, the work of the Son of God who has come into this world to save us? It is majestic. It is glorious. It is worthy of our heart's affection and desire. And my hope is that Isaiah would help us even now to look at his beauty. During this Advent season, we've been considering the the messianic prophecies from the book of Isaiah, which has been called throughout church history a nickname, the fifth gospel, because it so clearly portrays and predicts the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. We've seen the last two weeks from Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 that he would come as this, this, this king. A king was coming. But once you get into the second half of Isaiah, he no longer mentions the coming king. But he does begin to talk about a coming servant. And the king and the servant are similar. The, like the king, the servant is going to be anointed by God's spirit. And like the king, he's, the servant's going to bring salvation to the earth. But unlike the king, who will be universally accepted, accepted and acclaimed, the servant's going to be rejected, suffered. And for many, for centuries, wonder who these individuals were. It was a great mystery to everyone from the point which Isaiah penned these words to 700 years later when Christ came upon this earth and explained that these are not individuals, but this is an individual. That the king is the servant, and the, or the servant is the king. And we see this begin to unfold for us in the New Testament. For instance, it's beautifully displayed in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, John is in his vision and he is told, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And so he begins to look for this lion. And the very next verse says, And I saw a lamb standing as though it were slain. Right? The first half of Isaiah says, Behold your king. The second half says, Look at your servant. It's the same one. He is both lion and lamb. And this servant will rescue us. Not through the battle that he fights but like a king, but through his suffering. And I want to consider with you this morning the majesty of the suffering servant of God from this passage in the book of Isaiah. There are really, uh, this 15 verses, as I mentioned, there are five stanzas, three verses each, beginning in chapter 52 and verse 13, when... Isaiah introduces the servant. And so consider briefly with me the servant's introduction as he lays out these important themes which he's going to consider through the rest of this uh, song he sings. 
In verse 13, he begins with his identity saying, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. I mentioned that this is a reference to his identity because that phrase that he'll be high and lifted up are the exact same terms that Isaiah used to describe his vision in Isaiah 6. Remember when Isaiah was taken into the temple and there he saw the majesty of the Lord, the transcendent glory of God, and he said he was high and lifted up. And now he comes, that same phrase, to describe the majestic transcendence of God is used here in Isaiah 52 to describe this servant that is coming. Isaiah is telling us that the one who's coming is going to be divine and therefore worthy of our worship. But he does not receive our worship. In fact, Isaiah moves to the reaction to the servant in verse 14 saying, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He, something's happened to him, hasn't it? He's been marred. He's appalling. He's, he's repulsive. And it reminds us, I think, that Christ was beaten so severely that no one even thought to ask, is that the servant of the Lord? Is that the Lord's chosen? Instead, they ask, is that even human? This servant, according to Isaiah, was marred beyond human semblance. This divine one begins to suffer greatly so that, according to verse 15, he might cleanse the nations. The Bible says, so he shall sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. And so Isaiah says the nations will be sprinkled by him. They'll be cleansed by him, that he'll be forgiven. And so in this first stanza, Isaiah has a number of wonderful, incredible, important points that he's going to unfold in the rest of this song. That this one has come to make us clean. And Isaiah invites us to consider him in greater detail. He comes, and Isaiah says, when he comes, he will be rejected by us, which is the second stanza in this prophecy the prophet gives us. You see in Isaiah 53 and verse 1, the Bible tells us, who has believed what they have heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I like how Isaiah calls the Messiah the arm of the Lord. I mentioned this last Sunday night uh, at the Christmas cantata that we had in the evening, that Jesus, the Messiah, comes as God's arm, not necessarily God's mouth. That is, the, the arm of God is used in the Bible to describe times when God acts in history powerfully, concretely, acts often to bring redemption. He parts the sea by the arm of God. He defeats Jericho by the arm of the Lord. And now Isaiah says the Messiah is coming as the arm of God, not the mouth of God. That is, he's coming not primarily to teach us. He's coming primarily to act on our behalf. And I just want to pause here for a moment because I think this is the great difference between Christianity and all other world's religions. All other religions in this world, their founder comes along as, if you will, the mouth of God. They come and say, this is what you must do to connect with God. Jesus doesn't come into the mouth of God. He comes as the arm of God saying, this is what I have done in order to connect you to God. You see the difference? All other religions in this world come and they give you advice, instruction, which you must follow. Christianity instead, the arm of God comes and he doesn't give you advice. He brings you news of what he has done, which you must believe. See, the arm of the Lord has come. He's done this work for us. But they rejected him. You see in verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a dry root out of like a root out of dry ground. He had no form 
or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. See, he's, he wasn't what they expected. Verse 1 says, who's believed what they heard from us? No one's believed him. In fact, John will quote Isaiah 53.1 to say no one's, no one's placing their faith in Jesus just as was prophesied because he's not what they expected. He's not majestic. He's not attractive. He's a young plant from a dry ground. He's an unpromising man from a failed and occupied nation. He's a simple man. He's a carpenter from a hick town. and He's a teacher and he's not a warrior. He meets with sinners and not the powerful. And he's not what they wanted, not what they expected. We need someone who can lead an army and guide a nation, not somebody who can make a wheelbarrow and tell a story. And so they were not drawn to him. They had no reason to look to him. There's no desire for him. He was ignored. Isn't that extraordinary? That the Son of God comes into this world, becomes a man to save us from our sin, and humanity ignores him, pays no attention to him. And when, when they do pay attention to him, the prophet tells us they hated him. Look in, look in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He's what they hated. Jesus would say this. The world hates me. The world doesn't want me. And I wonder if it's because Jesus, when he comes, he doesn't endorse our way of life. He lives a radically God-centered life and brings conviction upon us. We don't like the light that he bears upon our sin. He doesn't endorse our life. And so we protect ourselves by despising him. And I use the word we on purpose. Isaiah uses this, this pronoun. He doesn't say they. He says we've done this. We saw that in verse 2. He had no form of majesty that we should look in him. No beauty that we should desire him. We, if we were there... Friends, if you were there, you would have despised him as long, along with everyone. You would have walked away from him. You would have ignored him. You would have been scandalized by him. You would have turned away from him, just like almost everyone did while he walked upon this earth. You would have done it as well. So would I. The question is, that now that we have the full truth, what about now? What about now? Do you continue to reject him? Do, do, you, do you continue to ignore him? I, I assume you're not among those who hate him. You're here after all. Right? You, you most likely don't despise him. But how many just live life, maybe nod in his direction, some, some meager approval as they quickly walk by, and an occasional prayer to God, attend a church service every once in a while, but there's no love in your heart, no devotion, no commitment, just throwing a quarter in the cup at the blood-stained feet of Christ as you move on with life. That's ignoring Him. It's rejecting who He is. The prophet said it would happen in his day and it continues to in our day. May we not be counted among those who reject Him. He said those people rejected the servant, but what's amazing is that he continues and he tells us what he does to those who reject him. As we consider, thirdly, the servant's substitution. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
He was wounded or pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. It's in this passage that you could really begin to appreciate why it is they call him the suffering servant. And you see the language that's used to describe he's stricken and smitten and afflicted and pierced and crushed, chastised and wounded. You read on, even the rest of this this prophecy, and we'll see that he's oppressed, afflicted, slaughtered, judged, cut off, stricken, crushed, grief, anguish, burial. Right, All this is coming against him. And, and everyone, according to the prophet, draws one conclusion. God must be punishing him. Right? You see that in verse 4? Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. They thought he's under God's judgment. So they gathered at the cross, not to cheer him, not to comfort him, but to watch him get what he had coming to him. God is smiting him, they thought. God is striking him. God is afflicting him. And they were right. God was afflicting him. God was striking him. But he was not striking him for what he had done. He was striking him for what we had done. You see, he, it is for, according to verse 5, for our transgressions he was pierced. It is for our iniquities he is crushed. He's taking our punishment. He's taking our place. And we see this language of substitution throughout Isaiah 53. In verse 4, it's our grief he bore and our sorrows he carried. In verse 6, it's our iniquity that's laid on him. In verse 8, it's for the trans, he's stricken for the transgression of the people. Verse 11, he bears their iniquity. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many people. It's, he's taking our punishment upon him. The prophet tells us. In fact, there's a riddle in the book of Isaiah. In fact, it's not just in Isaiah. It's throughout the, the whole Old Testament. And the riddle goes like this. How can God be gracious and forgiving and still punish people for their sins? How can he do both? In fact, when God reveals himself to Moses, he reveals himself by saying, The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquities, right? God forgives iniquities. And then he says, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Well, how do you forgive iniquity and not, and, and, and still refuse to clear the guilty? Well, Isaiah is telling us. He, he'll do both. He'll forgive and punish at the same time. By punishing in our substitute. That Christ came, was born as a baby, and took punishment upon himself. He suffered in our place, the prophet tells us. In fact, he goes on to tell us why he had to make this substitution. As you see our sin in verse 6. All we like sheep, he says, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the prophet likens us to sheep, wayward sheep, going our own way, doing our own thing. I would suggest to you that really Isaiah 53, 6 is the essence of sin. I want to be my own shepherd. I want to be in charge of my life, right? You would probably do well not to think of sin simply as breaking rules. You would probably do well not to think of sin simply as wicked acts, Sin is more like rejecting the maker. Sin is more like a sheep wanting to be a shepherd. It's taking God's place. And I think many people live this way. They, they say, you know, I'll obey God when it fits my feelings and my desires and my ambitions. And when we say that, we, what we're saying is that my will and goals and priorities sit in judgment on God's. That's sin. 
We exalt ourselves and say, I'm going to do what I want and I'll only obey God when I want to do so. Obedience is saying, I'll obey no matter what. I'll obey when it violates my goals and my feelings. I'll obey when I don't understand. I'll obey when it even hurts me. And what we're saying is that God's wisdoms and God's priorities and, and God's goals uh, sit in judgment upon ours. See, we're either your will is law and God's will is advice or God's will is law and your will is advice. And he's saying here that we are, we're like sheep. We want to be, we've gone our way. We're doing our own thing. And Isaiah wants to know who's the shepherd and who's the sheep, who's the Lord and who's the servant. We see here that the essence of sin is really substituting ourselves for God. We're putting ourselves in God's place. I want to do my own thing and we've all done it according to the prophet. All we like sheep have gone astray. He says, every one of us has done this. This is why God has sent his son. This is to take our punishment as our substitute. If the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, excuse me, the yeah, the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. The, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. That God comes and substitutes himself for us. That, that he has placed all our sin upon him. And that we might be treated like he has accomplished all, that we have accomplished all his righteousness. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. This picture of substitution. There, there are two ways to obey the law of a stop sign. Right? You can either stop, and from what I now understand, that means to come to a complete stop with your wheels no longer moving. You have to wait, count to three or something like that before you can move on, right? Or you could pay the penalty, right? You, so you obey the, 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 fulfill the law of the stop sign by stopping or paying. The same thing with God. You fulfill the law of God by obeying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time and so forth. Or you can pay the penalty. Christian, you've done neither. You have not obeyed and nor have you paid. Jesus has done both. He has obeyed for you and paid for you. For you. So Merry Christmas, right? Christ has paid your debt. Can you hear the majesty of what he has done as he has come and lived in your place and died in your place? The essence of Christianity is not trying to live a good life. That's the consequence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is saying, God, accept me for what Christ has done for me. Accept me because he has paid my penalty. Right? If, if you think you could save yourself... I'm just going to save myself by being good. I'm going to get into heaven because I'm a good person. What in the world is God doing putting his son on a cross? You need a savior. We all need a savior. We all like sheep have gone our own way. And he has come to pay that debt. The servants is our substitute. But we see what the debt cost. What does what his substitution look like? Well, we move fourthly to the servant's death. He has to die for us. Verse 7, the Bible says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You notice now he's the sheep, right? In verse 6, we're the sheep. Verse 7, he's the sheep, but not to emphasize his waywardness, to emphasize his sacrificialness, if I could use that that way. The sheep were the animals of sacrifice. 
the sheep were slaughtered, not for their sin, mind you. They were slaughtered because of the sin of those who brought them. And the priest would put his hands upon the head of the sheep and be confess your sin into the sheep, transferring your sin upon this animal. And then the animal was sacrificed. That's exactly what happened to Christ, except a priest didn't place his hands upon his head. God did, if you will. God transferred all of our sin onto Christ before he was sacrificed for us. Verse 10 of Isaiah says, it was the will of the Father to crush him. He transferred our sin upon him and he died there upon the cross. As one has put it, when death was creeping over him and demons were tormenting him and men were torturing him, he reached out for his father's hand. He looked up for his father's smile and all was darkness and wrath. And he uttered that bitter cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, undoubtedly, you perhaps have heard this uh, this Christmas season. You will if you come on our Christmas Eve, where we'll just one of the things we're going to do is read the the nativity uh, events of Christ. You're going to hear that when Jesus was born, he was born in the middle of the night, and yet even being born in the middle of the night, his birth was accompanied by this brilliant light. And yet, when we read about his death, it's not the middle of the night, but it's the middle of the day. And that middle of the day is shrouded by darkness as he dies for our sin. Verse 8, the prophet says he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of the people. Verse 9, it says he made his grave with the wicked. By the way, everyone who was crucified will be buried in a communal grave. And so Jesus would have been assigned a communal grave as a victim of crucifixion. But you read on, as the prophet said, and with a rich man in his death. Though he is assigned a place of the wicked, a burial place with the wicked, he wasn't buried there. He's buried with a rich man. The Bible tells us in Matthew 27, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, and Joseph took the body and laid it in his tomb. I, I wonder, why, why did Jesus get this royal burial? I, I, I speculate, I don't know. I wonder if it's because the, the death Debt hasn't been paid, and God says, "No more, no more shame for you. You're going to be buried like a king." And he, the Isaiah prophesied exactly what would happen. This burial that takes place. He's a sheep to be slaughtered. He's cut off from the land of the living. He's buried. You see him very clearly teaching us that the servant would have to die. But what I find extraordinary about this passage is his willingness. You, you see that up in verse seven. That he, twice it tells us he didn't open his mouth. He was silent like a sheep before its shears. And we see that in the life of Christ, don't we? He, he's taken before the, the high priest at night and these false witnesses all around. And the high priest says, do you make no answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? And the Bible says, and Jesus was silent. Or when he's charged before Pilate, Pilate says to him, do you make no answer? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Or even before Herod, who questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. You see, he's silent because he won't defend himself. He's not going to do anything that will prevent his death. In fact, I would suggest to you, as Jesus voluntarily goes to death, he's, he's the only one who has ever voluntarily died. He's the only one who's ever voluntarily died. Now, certainly people have voluntarily given them their life up for other people. People have committed suicide. I understand that. But they didn't choose to die. They chose maybe how to die. They maybe chose when to die. 
But they didn't choose to die. Death was already chosen for them. They, they were going to die one way or another. Jesus Christ is the only one who chose to die. The only one who did not have to die and yet chose it for you. I think Tim Keller's puts it, he took, as if, as if he took his body in one hand and his soul in the other and tore himself apart for you. He voluntarily went and died because he loves you. You need to understand that. You see how powerful this love is for you? Right? You, you see how much he has given up for you? What that means is that your sinfulness, Christian, and your waywardness is not going to end his love. Do not think that you could outsin his love, right? If the cross did not break him, if he didn't say in the middle of the cross, forget this, they're not worth it. If he drank the, the cup of the wrath of God all the way to its bottom, there's nothing you can do to get him not to love you. Don't flatter yourself, right? Your, your, your sin is not strong enough. His love is unbreakable for you. It's eternal for you. He has bared the wrath of God for you. Merry Christmas. His love is for you now and forever and shall never be taken from you. He died for you. The servant went to the cross for you. But he didn't stay on the cross. And he didn't stay in that rich man's tomb. Even the prophet Isaiah tells us of the servant's resurrection. In verse 10. He says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. You get this? God's going to crush him, he says, and prolong his days and prosper his hand. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see what he says? He says he's going to have his anguish in his soul to the point of death and be satisfied afterwards. Or verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Right? He pours out his soul to death, and he plans to divide the spoils of victory and make intercession for us. Right? He's not dead. He's alive. He's satisfied. He's enjoying spoils. He's enjoying his offspring. He's interceding for us. The suffering servant becomes the risen Lord. I mean, amen. Look at verse 10. He says he will see his offspring. Right? Who's his offspring? Yes, we are. We're his offspring. And what that means is that his death, his substitution, has not only taken care of your sin problem, it has taken care of your alienation. You are now part of his family. Merry Christmas. God has not only forgiven you, he has invited you into his very family and considers you to be his children. Right? His death and resurrection gives us forgiveness and adoption. Well, look in verse 11. He goes on and says, and he will, he will be satisfied. He will see it and be satisfied. I think he's referring to he sees you loving him and believing in him and bowing your knee in faith to him and delighting in him. And he is satisfied in that. 
In other words, the joy of God is seeing people come to Christ and receive the forgiveness and grace He offers. So I tell you, Merry Christmas. He loves to forgive you. His joy and satisfaction is in your repentance and in extending you grace. And go on, read verse 12. It says that He poured out His soul to death, right? He, He descended in unimaginable depths and yet now enjoys the spoils of victory. But it goes on and says He will divide the spoils of victory with us. Right? And so it's just not His. In fact, if you are in Christ, the Bible says, you are co-heirs with Jesus. Right? You, you have received an inheritance that is His inheritance. I tell you, Merry Christmas. God has preserved for you an inheritance that is undefiled and imperishable, kept for you in heaven. And you read on in verse 12, He bore the sin of many and He makes intercession for the transgressors. Right? And so now He's in heaven and He's interceding for you. Merry Christmas. Christ is alive, standing before God, interceding for the very ones who despised Him and ignored Him and drove Him to death. My friends, can you hear the majesty of God's redemption? Do you hear the symphony of God's grace? How many people just offer Him a meager nod? How many people are bored with him. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, once considered how, how Christ understands his death differently than everybody else. He wrote, The cross, said he, the gallows of my doom may seem to be cursed with shame, and the world may stand round and hiss at the crucified. My name be forever dishonored as one who died upon a tree. But I look not at the cross as you do. Oh, shall I tell you what I behold upon the cross? Just when my eye is swimming with the last tear and my heart is palpitating with its last pang, just when my body is rent with its last thrill of anguish, Then mine eye shall see the head of the dragon broken. Mine eye shall see my offspring eternally saved. In that moment of my doom, when my mouth is just preparing for its last cry of it is finished, I shall behold the year of my redeemed come, and I shall shout my triumph in the delivery of my beloved. And I shall see then the world, mine own conquered, and usurpers all disthroned. And I shall behold in vision the glories of the latter days, when I shall sit upon the throne of my father David and judge the earth attended with the pomp of angels and the shouts of the beloved. Will you, will you shout in your heart as the one of the beloved to him who has done this work for you? I understand this time of year we celebrate the baby in the manger. We rightly do so. But please understand the baby grew up. He's not a baby anymore. And if you could, if God could peel back the veil that separates this world from ours, the last thing you would do would be to hurry on with your day. 
The last thing you would do would toss a couple coins in his direction. You would fall to your knees as everyone will, and you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Will you not make that confession in your heart right now? Jesus Christ, you are my Lord, and you are worthy of everything. I praise you. I delight in you. I worship you. Our Father, we're so thankful for our Lord. We're so thankful that when we were lost and wayward, gone astray, trying to take your place out of your great and unconquerable love for us, sent Christ in this world to die for sinners, that we might receive grace and mercy, that we might be adopted into your family, that we might divide the spoils with Jesus, that he might continue forever to intercede on our behalf. Oh, Jesus, we are so easily led astray and so easily distracted. Will you help us have ears for true beauty and majesty? Will you help us to delight in Christ? And we pray this morning for our friend here or our friends who, who have for some reason resist this God, this God who sent His Son to pay everything for them, do everything for them, and yet, it, for some reason in their hearts, it's not enough. Will you help them? Will you help them come to the end of themselves and see the majesty of the grace in which you offer them freely right now? That they might cry out, God, I believe. I surrender my life to Jesus. That they too might know the forgiveness that we rejoice in. Do this for their great and eternal gain and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.